You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, well, we've been studying uh, Matthew for a season, and we still have a couple more weeks in Matthew. We've spent some time in discourse passages, which were, we brought to an end last week, and now looking at some narrative passages because of Palm Sunday and Easter. And uh, finally, uh, the week after Easter, we'll look at uh, what happens after the resurrection. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel. But the uh, theme in Matthew has been uh, Christ's identity as the long-awaited uh, king of Israel, the Messiah. And we see all along in Matthew how some respond to this identity, that the identity is a, a big theme throughout, and we see how different people respond to that identity of who Jesus is as that long-awaited uh, Messiah, the king of Israel. Just consider from the beginning uh, the wise men who come from far off to, to worship this king, rightly responding, uh, and first of all, they're Gentiles. This sort of gives a, a, a first glimmer of what's to come with the, the life and ministry of Jesus and what it means for the whole world. But then right away, look at how Herod responds quite differently than uh, the, the wise men. Um, just to sort of cover his bases because he's worried that this new so-called king baby will usurp his, his throne, that he slaughters all the innocent uh, small uh, boys about the same age in and around Bethlehem. Or consider the devil who challenges uh, Jesus and his identity in the wilderness. Shortly after his baptism, he's ushered into the wilderness uh, and the devil challenges um, him not just as being the king of the Jews, but also the son of God. And then he offers him all the kingdoms of the world, but they already belong to him as the true king. Or even John the Baptist, of all people, sends his own disciples uh, who say to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the guy that we've been waiting for, this long-awaited king? Uh, and he responds to John the Baptist's disciples, demonstrating that just what type of king he actually is by saying, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So he's emphasizing that he is this expected one, but he looks nothing like what anyone expected. Uh, not even John the Baptist. His work is service, not political action for the world alone. And in his encounter with John's disciple, Matthew's emphasizing uh, another point uh, that comes up throughout this particular gospel is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Hebrew prophecy uh, in particular and the Old Testament in general. Matthew does this throughout, stringing uh, pearls from the Old Testament, particularly prophecy and connecting it to who Jesus is. So after about three years of ministry and traveling around with his disciples, he finally makes his way uh, to Jerusalem, to the capital city of Israel, the holy city, the place where the temple is, 
the city where the king of the Jews belongs. And just before entering town, he pulls his disciples aside and says to them, just as they're on the outskirts of Jerusalem, he says, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, which is also another deliberate reference to his messianic identity, he says, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And their response must have been, say what? <laughs> what you talk about Jesus? Um, he, he's had a strange ministry for three years, uh, but now he's saying he's going to walk willingly to his own death. And the next day he does come into Jerusalem. And this isn't really a triumphal entry. That's sort of a misnomer, actually. It's probably created by the people who create those little headings in the Bible that actually aren't Scripture. Um, This is actually a sort of modest or humble entry. It's unpretentious, seemingly powerless, and otherwise unlike anything uh, we would expect. You know, you would expect a a white warhorse and not a donkey. We'll sing later tonight a song uh, at the end of the service called Ride On, Ride On in Majesty. And there's a great line in there that calls it lowly pomp. You know, this isn't pomp and circumstance. This is lowly pomp. Just imagine today if something like this were to happen. Imagine that there's a guy from West Virginia. And he's been teaching and preaching around, say, you know, Tennessee, Georgia, and Virginia, those areas. And while rumors have spread that he's the rightful president of the United States, he has never confirmed these rumors publicly. Finally, today, he's arriving on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. to publicly affirm his identity as the president. And while he's awaiting on the, uh, waiting on the other side of the Potomac River there in, say, you know, Arlington, Virginia, he sends uh, two of his friends to borrow two pickup trucks And he rides into D.C. down Constitution Avenue, just him alone in a brand new Ford F-150 that's never been driven before. And his friends are in a super uh, diesel, super duty F-550, you know, the dually tires in the back. And that one's been used for a long time. There's no motorcade other than this. Maybe there's a trailer hitched behind one of them. And meanwhile, the streets are lined with tens of thousands of people for him, and they're playing hail to the chief and shouting, God bless America, and waving those little American flags, you know? And what would the response to such a thing be? Like Jerusalem, not only the city of uh, Washington, but also the whole world and our social media generation would be stirred up by this simply because of the crowd's size. And, by the way, the fact that it's a guy from West Virginia in a pickup truck that everybody's doing this for. Then imagine, rather than going to the Capitol building, rather than leading a political revolution with this large crowd, instead he goes to the Washington National Cathedral, which is an Episcopal church. Or, you know, you can just imagine it here in Birmingham. Instead of going to, you know, Lynn Park, to City Hall, he comes right here to the Advent. But imagine Washington National Cathedral, and the place is filled with tourists, and he drives them out, and he leads an unofficial healing service, and the dean and canons come and ask him to leave. 
And it's them, finally, after all, and not the politicians who plot to have him killed. That's basically, you know, kind of, sort of, a 21st century example of what Jesus Christ's entry into Jerusalem must have been like and what happened in the days to follow. At the heart of our passage today, Matthew quotes a prophecy in relation to Jesus' identity. It's from Zechariah chapter 9, which we read also. And I want to focus on on this prophecy and the uh, other Old Testament quotations here in our passage for what I want to say to you today, for what I want to tell tell you about Jesus' identity and what Palm Sunday and Holy Week are all about. This question of Christ's identity, as I said before, is the question of this passage. Not only a theme throughout Matthew, but the question in this passage. Actually, the people of all of Jerusalem say, who is this? You know, who is this guy in the F-150? Who is this guy on the donkey? Who is he exactly? And as I said, the quotation in the middle of the passage is from Zechariah 9, verse 9. goes like this. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. By the way, I always thought Mick Jagger was saying, I'll never leave your pizza burning. Uh, but he's talking, I'll never be your beast of burden. Um, that, that's what Jesus is on, on a beast of burden, a donkey. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting in this passage that, uh, that Matthew leaves out a bit of Zechariah 9.9. He actually skips over like an ellipsis, a little bit that's there in the middle, where the ESV translates, this is what's left out in Zechariah 9.9, righteous and having salvation is he. That The good news translation has it, he comes triumphant and victorious. Matthew has intentionally left this phrase out. Why would he do this? It's in the very middle of the verse. It must be intentional. His entry is not necessarily triumphant and victorious. Rather, like the animal that he chooses, the beast of burden, it's modest and humble. Actually, in many respects, it's it's kind of silly. I mean, just think of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. You know, anytime you think of donkeys, it's usually not a positive thing. Or, what's his name, Um, Sancho Panza from uh, um, Don Quixote, you know, riding on a donkey. It tells you something about his character. A donkey is a lower-class animal, a working animal of service. By the way, you know the restaurant in Homewood, Little Donkey? is because burrito is little, that means little donkey in Spanish. A burro is a donkey. You know, it's working class food. The poor, the weak, and the shy, the, shy, the ill might find him accessible because of the way that he's coming in rather than on a war horse, on a little donkey. The choice of the donkey is intentional and he's to be identified with it. And this is what, it's, what is said of our, of our beast of burden, of Jesus Christ, who is our beast of burden. From Isaiah, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Or you might think of what Jesus said himself earlier in Matthew's gospel in chapter 11 when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will take on your burdens. So who is this king? 
He's our beast of burden, humble and approachable. He carries our loads like a pickup truck or a donkey. The other Old Testament citation in this passage is from Psalm 118, which we also read, verses 25 and 26 in particular. This is when the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, which means save us, save us, please, we pray, save us. They're begging him to bring rescue and hope and mercy. And as I said, uh, um, or hold on, hold that thought, sorry. Interestingly, he also couples this uh, phrase with, um, with to the son of David. So in effect, they're praying for Jesus as if to say, God, please save the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. God, please, we pray, save the son of David. And this is important because God would not save the son of David at first. He would be allowed to die. But there, God saves you. Yet he would save, uh, he would save the son of David at the resurrection. So when the crowd said, Hosanna in the highest, this could be understood to mean, God, dig the deepest you can. Save in the best way possible. And although they may have been thinking on political terms, God would save them in the best way possible, actually, with Christ's resurrection. He would save all who trust in Jesus Christ from all the terrors that death brings. And so I want to turn uh, my sights of all this directly on you. I want to turn my sights for all that uh, we've looked at today here on you. From what are you searching release and salvation? Perhaps like the crowd, you really do want a, a political rescue. But my guess is that you have bigger concerns. No matter what's going on in the news, it's probably not the thing that's really giving you anxiety. And although you might characterize them as... Uh, things about meaning and fulfillment, wealth, or the desire for leisure and relationships, success, notoriety, whatever it is, you know, those things that are burdensome to you. Ultimately, the two big ones are these, judgment and death. That's behind all of it. In the passage here, Matthew addresses both. The God who will come again on a white war horse to judge first came on a donkey, humble and accessible, to bear all our burdens. God would not save him so that he might save us. Like a beast of burden, he bore the weight of all, all our sinfulness. Right there on the cross, he bore that weight for you. So think of uh, all the truth there is about you that is worthy of shame and guilt, and judgment from God. Right there on a cross, like a donkey, he bore, it all, bore all the weight of your transgressions. And then God would save him from death. But even there, at the resurrection, he was not only saving the son of David, he was also saving you from the burdens of death. So again, just think about your, your own death now. Think about your own death, all that's unknown, 
all that you fear and all that you dread about it. Hosanna in the highest. God saved the son of David in the best possible way. And he did. He actually did it. He saved him for your sake. And as a result, you no longer need to fear death. Your king has come. And although he's come in a way that we would uh, not um, have created of our own accord or would have expected, he has come and he's dealt with it in the best possible way, in the way that he would do it. And he's done it for you. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.